0: This brings us to the the message of today. And in it, uh, Jody and I have sort of combined the scripture reading and our comments and reflections uh, on them. Um, It may be worth noting that the passages for today recur in all three years of the uh, lectionary outline, uh, suggesting it's uh, important material. Jody sent me the text midweek and I sat down to to read them uh, in preparation for conversation planning with her. And I was very taken with them uh, and found myself looking for the connections uh, between them and was very engaged with those. Uh, And it left me with a bit of a sense of gratitude to some anonymous monk from centuries ago who perhaps saw these links and put them together. So I'll read the texts and then offer uh, a few comments and questions that have come to mind as I read them. Um, This models one common way of using the lectionary of using the text as a group. And then Jody will dive into the last passage, which models uh, Another common way of using the lecture, lectionary, with a focus on the gospel passage. So, here the uh, text from Isaiah Arise, shine out, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen on you. Look, though the night still covers the earth and darkness the peoples, on you Yahweh is rising, and over you the glory of God can be seen. The nations will come to your light, and the rulers to your dawning bright to your dawning brightness. Lift up your eyes and look around; all are assembling and coming towards you. Your sons coming from far away, and your daughters being carried on the hip. At this sight, you will grow radiant. Your heart will throb and dilate, since the riches of the sea will flow to you. The wealth of the nations come to you. Camels in throngs will fill your streets. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, everyone in Saba will come bringing gold and incense and proclaiming Yahweh's praises. So this is a familiar and stirring passage. The language brings melodies from Handel's Messiah to my mind at least. And I hear a declaration of fulfillment of hope. Light is replacing darkness. Sons come home, small daughters are carried on the hip. There is prosperity and the riches of the sea flow. The wealth of nations comes. But a question also arises. Almost a reflexive question to me, an aging Anabaptist who looks out with distress on the world on a world of extremes in poverty and wealth. How do we regard wealth and the power that often attends it? How do we differentiate between prosperity and excess wealth and power? With that question in mind, let's turn to Psalm 72. O God, give your anointed one your judgment and your justice. Teach your chosen one to govern your people rightly and to bring justice to the oppressed. The mountains will bring the people peace and the hills justice. Your anointed will defend the oppressed among the people, save the children of the poor and crush the oppressor. The reign of your anointed will endure as long as the sun and moon throughout all generations. The rule of the chosen one will be like rain coming down on the meadow, like showers watering the earth. Justice will flower through the days and profound peace until the moon is no more. Tarshish in the Isles will offer gifts. Arabia and Sheba will bring tribute. All rulers will pay homage and all the nations will serve your anointed. Your anointed will rescue the poor when they cry out and the oppressed when there is no help, when there is no one to help them. Your chosen one will take pity on the lowly and the poor and will save their lives. Your chosen one will rescue them from all violence and oppression and will treat their blood as precious. This passage begins to offer an answer to the question of how to regard wealth, how to conduct societal life where power and wealth are so unevenly aggregated. And these include justice, govern with justice for the oppressed, save the children of the needy for they are precious. Such leadership fosters righteousness and gains the respect of the nations. It seems good and possible that a ruler may be fair and just and that those who govern should and can be concerned with the well-being of all. But it's complicated. There are doubtless rulers with good intentions, but governance is a long game, an endless game, and there are plenty of ways to compromise and to be compromised. Where does one find the fortitude and resolve to rule justly? And how do we, citizens, members of humankind, navigate the demands of fairness and compassion in our daily lives and in our civic life? It can be easy to spell out ideals, but how do we make our, de- our sorry, how do we make our ideals a reality? Where do we find the strength and resources for that work? So now, Ephesians. For I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, am sure that you have heard of God's grace, of which I was made a steward on your behalf. This mystery, as I have briefly described it to you, was given to me by revelation. When you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was unknown to the people of former ages, but is now revealed by the spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. That mystery is that the Gentiles are heirs, as are we, members of the body, as are we, and partakers in the promise of Jesus the Messiah through the good news, as are we. I became a minister of the good news by the gift of divine grace, given me through the working of God's power. To me, the least of all believers was given the grace to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable unfathomable riches of Christ and to enlighten all people on the mysterious design for which ages was hidden in God, the creator of all. Now, therefore, through the church, God's many-sided wisdom, is made known to the rulers and powers of heaven in accord with the age-old design carried out in Christ Jesus our Savior, in whom we have boldness and confident access to God through our faith in Christ. Sometimes I think Paul could have used a good editor, but I will be generous with him. He is someone who made a profound change of orientation and went on to act on his convictions, often a great personal hardship and peril. And here he grapples, I think, with complicated cosmic matters of faith and belief. I hear Paul is saying, We've been offered a resource to make our way. Christ is that treasure, a source of light on the complicated mysterious inner workings of God's creation. As Anabaptists, we claim the model, the spirit, the person, the power of Christ. These things enable us to approach God in complete confidence and to act as agents of justice and agents of creation. Principalities and ruling powers can see the many-sided wisdom of God. We, the church, the task of teaching them. Still feels daunting, this task of being fair-minded, of doing justice. But the coming of Christ manifest in epiphany equips us with hope and energy for that good work. So this brings us to the last passage, the story of the Magi's visit. It's a wonderful story and there are echoes of the texts we've heard. I also think it would make a good opera. And since we've heard it beautifully read by Betsy in Tommy Goli's story, I will not reread it, but uh, turn it over to Jody to share her portion of this message.
1: Thank you. Now, I'm not gonna tie this all up in a bow. I might scatter it around a little bit. But- Anyways, last year on December 21st, my family piled into our car with the hopes of escaping the city lights and catching a glimpse of the much advertised astral phenomenon, the conjunction of Juniper, Jupiter and Saturn. Conveniently advertised in the media as the Christmas star and postulated as possibly the same star that led the wise men we were kind of whistling in the dark. Doug, my husband, and I knew that there wasn't much of a chance that we would see the planets. Meteorologists had predicted a thick cloud cover that night. If we had honestly been chasing the star, we would have had to drive hours instead of minutes outside of the city. But we were struggling. We were struggling with a pared down holiday due to COVID and a bit of cabin fever and I thought we all needed a diversion. So we promised Starbucks to the teenagers and climbed into the car. We didn't see the star. We didn't see anything. Instead, some impossibly stupid fight started up between my children. It was frankly a miserable trip. To make matters worse, I weighed in with angry recriminations about why can't you guys even get along at Christmas? It was all regrettable. The poem, The Journey of the Magi, that Danny read also describes a difficult journey, one with more gravitas than mine. The wise men are abandoned by their camel drivers. Their fires go out. They are often lacking in shelter. The journey is so difficult that at times they traveled at night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in their ears, saying that it was all folly. Now, this is all conjecture on Eliot's part. The tell, text tells us nothing about the perils of the wise men's journey. Instead, Matthew focuses on the perilous situation the magic find themselves when they arrive in Jerusalem. These were esoteric men searching for wisdom and revelation, but when they arrive in Jerusalem, they run headlong into a tense local political situation. In charge, A petty potentate, King Herod, allowed to rule by the Romans because of his capacity to keep the unruly Judeans quiet. Herod and all Jerusalem take the wise men's predictions of a king to be incredibly threatening to that order. And so Herod talks to the Magi secretly in order to discover the exact date when the star appeared. And in the next chapter, we all discover that he uses this information to decide to murder every baby under two. It's a dark story. And as Nelson said in his introduction, this story is dramatic, even operatic. There is this vassal king who is afraid, who rules through terror and cunning. There are foreign dignitaries moving through the narrative with quiet gravitas, seeking only to offer homage and present their gifts the child unknowing and yet known the star somehow attracted to its gravity and so the stage is set our stage is set for us to hear the story once again we began the service noting that we will plan to explore the lectionary over the next several sundays The lectionary is very intentional with its desire for us to walk through this story of birth and life and death of this person, Jesus. In its unfolding between now and Easter, we will perhaps begin to see answers to Nelson's questions and observations in the lectionary text, at least partially. How does this child's birth change the world, how we respond to the world. How does it help us to see what gifts the church has to bring to the world? We hope um, as we read through these stories again that we will be able to discover new ways of being faithful, new ways to order and organize our lives. I wonder if, as I'm saying this, that some of you listening sort of doubt what I'm saying really don't see scripture having that function. Perhaps, and I've confessed already that I do this, I am whistling in the dark, like when I invited our kids into the car to go and see the Star of Bethlehem, knowing good and well that it's most likely going to be covered in clouds. I know that it's hard to continue week in and week out to engage scripture with a sense of hope and expectancy. Perhaps like me, you were once able to explore the Bible this way, looking for revelations and answers and mysteries. But instead of insights, you often found stupid conflicts and arguments, people trying to control each other like I did in the car through guilt. And yet I challenge us to give it another chance. That car trip was mostly a disaster but it did end with an honest conversation about how very frustrated we all were. At the very least, I think the Bible, like a cramped car, can be a place where we meet. And I think it's a unique place of meeting. Nelson and I began talking about this week's texts a little bit later than we might normally. Tuesday night, we had both been involved in a worship committee meeting, trying to work out whether we would go back to Zoom and all the disappointment that attended that. In our conversation the next day, I was enjoying so much hearing some of his wonderful insights about the text, and also his delight in reading them. In that conversation, I told him some of the ways I was seeing the text. My sympathy was with the wise men who were seeking mystery and somehow got embroiled in politics. Nelson mentioned a poem he knew about the journey of the Magi, and how journeys are sometimes unexpected. All in all, it was a good conversation between two people who don't really know each other very well, who have very different backgrounds, different ways, I think, of approaching the world. um, Who There is a bit of a generational divide. (laughs) And there's not many places, I don't think, where people can have these kinds of important conversations together, especially as equals. But we do that each week, partially meeting over scripture. So I do believe scripture can be a place where we can meet and a place where we can have rich conversation together about what's important. But I would be lying if I told you that I still didn't believe that it can be much more than that. I still believe it's filled with mystery and epiphany and revelation. Anyways, I did finally see the great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, the star of Bethlehem last year. My best friend from my childhood was in hospital with COVID. It was touch and go, whether she would have to go on a ventilator And I woke up in the middle of the night, deeply troubled and decided to take a walk at 3 AM and pray. It was bitterly cold, the kind of cold where the snow looks like it might be filled with thousands of fragmentary diamonds. And the air was stark. And as I turned the corner, there it was before me, Jupiter and Saturn, clear in the frigid night air. I hadn't been looking for it. And it admittedly was no longer in its ascendance. Jupiter and Saturn had begun to move away from each other, like the Holy Family and the Magi fleeing in separate directions. And yet the sight left me feeling overwhelmingly comforted. The star shining in the night. Maybe a sign? Honestly, sometimes, Going to church seems like that totally unmanageable, mismanaged family car trip, a regrettable waste of time. And yet I can't help but think that going to church like that family car trip might just prepare us in unexpected ways to be blindsided now and again by a mystery, overwhelmed by comfort and joy. And so this is my prayer for us that somehow in our piecemeal time together here on Zoom, that we might be made a bit more able to see goodness and truth and the spirit of God at work in our world and in our lives this week.